think this sermon comes with a warning. That's not my issue. Um, it's on. They'll deal with it. I've been a wreck all worship, so I'm not sure what you're going to get by way of a sermon. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to give words to what I feel in my heart. Because we have a great God. Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And now, O priests, this command is for you. Sorry about the sniffles. Just part of it. Verse 2. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Lord, we ask this morning that we would have such a vivid, such a thick reminder of your covenant that you have made with us. For that is how you capture our hearts. That is how you you gather us up to yourself and you help us consider our ways and you help us understand how we've been walking and how it's it's been just toward us and our own pleasure, our own amusement. 
But Lord, we ask that you would capture us so we would, we would walk according to your amazement. So we come and we yield ourselves, we surrender ourselves, we say, God, please, be God to us. Show us your glory. Show us your holiness that we might be in awe of you. In Jesus' name, do this, God. Got a couple questions last week of why. Why did Keith move everybody in the middle? What was that all about? I didn't know. I said, I don't know. He kind of mentioned it in his prayer after and when he concluded the message, I guess that was why. But as I began to think about that, I, I, for me, I had to process what it did for my own heart. It's the first time I've ever sat in this section on a Sunday morning since I've been in this church. I was a little way too close to Ray Pratt's. I was uncomfortable with that. He was across the aisle. I didn't know quite what to do with that. But you know what it did for me? It helped me listen. Because I had to reorient my mind. I had to reorient my vision. I had to sit differently. Different surroundings. And I listened better. And I think for all of us, I think, I hope that's what occurred, that when we have a, dis, when we have a change in our comfort level, because we're comfortable being here, we're, just, we're in different spots perhaps, but when we do that, it, it causes us to listen and, and dig in, lean forward. What's this about? We're asking that question, what's this about? But what it also did, when I got up to give the announcements last week, the, the majority of us who were here last week were sitting in, in these two sections. And if you weren't here, what Keith asked us to do, if, if you have been saved more than 15 years or more, to sit in the middle sections and to, to point out, help us listen, but I think also to point out that there's a greater expectation on those that were sitting in the middle. There's a, an expectation of fruitfulness. There's an expectation of Something should be seen and known. Glory should be coming from your life. And, and I hope this week there's been a, a shifting in our understandings of where we are with the Lord, where we are in our walk with Christ, where we are in, in obeying Him and understanding His commands and walking in faith in those. See, I think when we get too comfortable, it leads to a casualness which eventually leads to compromise. And that compromise is not necessarily, it, it comes, it starts in our minds, it's a, compromise, it's a compromise in our minds that we begin to take God's standards, His holy, righteous requirements for us, and we lose the person behind those. We lose the, the God behind those requirements and they just simply become rules and we begin to interpret them differently because we're interpreting them now based on our own natural assessment and we begin to adjust what God wants. That's where the compromise happens. And then eventually it'll show itself as we live life. But it doesn't immediately show itself there. It's gradual. There's a spiritual erosion that takes place if we get too comfortable. And God's got to shake some things. I'm so glad that the Lord gave that to Tammy to read because I didn't include all of that passage because it was too long for me to fit in the sermon. But God wanted you to know it anyway. I have a few verses. 
You see in the notes from Hebrews 12. But God, he does some shaking, but this is the really cool thing about God. When he shakes us, he's not condemning us. I'm gonna see this in a moment, that he's not, he's not pointing his finger saying shame on you, though we might feel that. What he's doing is displaying his love again for us. And that has a particular capturing. I, I, have, I have a burden for the body of Christ, and, and I think here, that I think the church in America perhaps specifically us, definitely for the teenagers that live in our culture who want to serve Christ. There is an attack of moderation. Don't be too zealous for Jesus. Don't be a doormat. Don't be non. So what that looks like for many of us is I'm coming to church. I'm doing that. Yeah, I invite people to Alpha. We're doing the right things. But yet... There's something in us that says, well, I don't want to be too far, you know. I don't want to run too fast because then I want to burn out. I think in that moment we're, we're, we're in a mind battle that's distracting us. And we see in this passage that that's exactly what's happening to these priests, the mature believers. There's a spiritual erosion that's occurring in their hearts, begun in their minds, where it's gradually they're giving themselves over to reordering and adjusting God's standards. They're all of a sudden saying, well, you know, it's not so much about the offering you bring. I mean, yeah, blemish, I can understand that. And, and there's the role of the priest then would actually be to bless. So if somebody comes bringing their offering, where the priest should have been saying, hey, uh, that's blemished, get me a new lamb. They weren't doing that anymore, and actually, they're, they're ext- they would ex- extend their hands to bless everybody that came by. That's where the instruction came. They're, they taught through their blessings, and they taught, focused on God. Here is God. Here is why you're bringing this this animal here to be sacrificed, this is the forgiveness that's being proclaimed and that one day we will have a sacrifice that will do away with all sacrifices. But the priests got comfortable and they got casual. And it led to the compromise of, well, my blessings that are now now go out, the focus became that of the blessing rather than the God who gives the blessing. And the focus became, uh, I'm going to help you out. So I'm going to bless you because you blessed me. And maybe it's not even the priests. They're supposed to be getting stuff from the animals so they can survive and eat. Maybe, maybe they're getting paid on the side. Maybe they have a good lamb on the side because this guy's coming saying, hey, would you give me a special blessing? And here, God is, is coming to the priest saying, this is for you. You, mature believers, this is for you. Consider your ways. See, I think this gradual erosion for the priests happened because they they began to look at their surroundings and lose the person behind what they were doing. They they lost, there was a disconnect in their hearts, we're told. There's a disconnect in their hearts. No longer do they see the God that's over all these things. They just see things. And then they become enamored with those things. And then they become selfish with those things. The vision that we heard last week that Kyle, that we gave through Kyle, this struck me. This was huge. The baby in a crib looking around saying, my room is wonderful. People who come in and feed me are wonderful. 
And in this part, I must be wonderful. When there's a comparison of things around us to all of a sudden we lose the person behind what we're doing, when there's a comparison with the surroundings, we inevitably have a false awareness of who we are and a false confidence in who we are, therefore, what we're doing. God's coming against these priests saying, see what you're doing? I don't stand for that. And he comes to them and he says, I'm cursing your blessings. See, in our offerings that we bring, do we... Have we lost the person that's behind them? Have we lost Jesus that's behind them? Why? Why was God so concerned about so many details in the Old Testament? Because we can read that and think, God, you're you're just a harsh God, man. Why don't you lack, just lay off a little bit. Take it easy, sit down, have a nice tea or something. What's the deal? I'm really thankful that God was as meticulous as he was. Because you know what it helps us do? Know exactly who Jesus is. See, he didn't just say, oh, uh, prophesy that the Messiah is going to come somewhere in the Middle East. He said, no, Bethlehem. And then he's going to come out of Egypt. And what the priests are doing with all, when you, when you read the book of Leviticus, all the responsibilities of the offerings and bringing them and how to bring them, there's, please never ever lose sight of two things. One, Jesus is all over the place. It's not boring stuff. Because <laughs> Jesus is all over the place and faith is all over the place. But when Jesus is all over the place in, that, in all of those rules and coming, it shows us the depth and the extent of everything that Jesus accomplished for us. And what these priests are doing are giving a false assurance to these people of who the Messiah is. To where they're learning, I can come to God based on what's good for me. Because that's what the priests are doing. That's what the mature believers are doing. God comes to them being zealous for his name, and he says, no. See, God's responding to a faithlessness that's crept in, that's, that spiritual erosion that's there. There's a, it crept in, and that faithlessness then produced itself fruitlessness. Priests had nothing to show for it. The, the blessings became the center point. The blessings became everything that they were going for. It wasn't about the offerings anymore. It wasn't about the picture of God that was being captured and gathered and demonstrated during that moment. Oh, and what a moment it was. Their blessings became natural. And God was giving them over to their natural investment. The blessings in, hey, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to pronounce a blessing upon you based on what's good for me. And the people probably receiving the same thing. He says, okay, you're just going to get what you asked for. Fruitlessness. There's not going to be anything to show for it. There's no blessing there. And, and God says, I will curse your blessing. Even saying, I rebuke your offspring. Now in this sense, that, that, word, is, that word for offspring is literally arm. So God is saying, I rebuke your arm. He's telling the priests, you think you're doing a noble, holy thing, but all you're doing is corrupting what I've said is pure and righteous in my eyes. You're giving a false picture of who I am. So he's telling them everything that you're doing, all the faithlessness that's coming from it, all of it, it's it's cursed. 
I'm cursing your labors. Now for us, church, let us put ourselves before God. And, and what's happening here, this is, this is serious. This is not, oh, that's God in the Old Testament. God says, I will put the dung of your labors on your face. And you'll walk around with it. Now, what they heard during that time is what that meant was being declared unclean. And anybody that was unclean in the Old Testament, somebody had to announce as they were walking down the street, unclean, unclean, and the street would part. So the unclean person would walk straight through. What embarrassment, what shame. And God is saying, when you try to do my things your way, you're going to be embarrassed. When you try to do my things your way, you're going to be unclean because you're just gathering up what's not me. You're gathering up and trying to have those things work and they're fruitless because there's a faithlessness in your hearts. Their efforts for God, their labors for God, their routine became the curse. It was embarrassing. You know, I think, I think we, we can see that. Uh, think through your own mind. Is your life fruitless as you survey your walk with Christ? Is, your, is there evidence of fruit? Is there even a bud? Is, or if, is it just not in season? Fruit, fruitless labors for God is part of a spiritual erosion. You know, we seek to bless somebody, and it's embarrassing. Have you ever had that experience? Because you know something's not right in your own heart. You know you're not living for God the way you should be, and so you seek to encourage somebody, and it just falls flat. You try to admonish your children. You try to participate in covenant group, and you feel like I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world. What do you experience in that moment? There's, see, God, God uses that particular shame that we feel when we know, God, my heart is faithless right now. And there is no evidence of faith occurring in my life. God uses that to win us back to him. Because if we didn't know what was going on, we wouldn't pay attention. And we don't want to be found to say, well, I just, I'm just going to continue going on and ignore like nothing's happening. I'm just going to do my thing my way and uh, God will bless me. That's exactly what the priests were doing. We'll just keep on doing it. God will bless me or God will forgive me. There, there can be moments in our lives where we're walking through life and it's fruitless and we're just thinking, well, I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing. God will forgive me. Hopefully God will bless me. And, and we're flippant. We're flippant with our idea of God. We're flippant with our, our judgments toward people. We're flippant with our opinions. The instruction coming from our mouths is natural. It's not supernatural. It's not froth with God himself where, where we say something and somebody says, that ministers to my soul. You have built me up in the faith by what you said. That's what we want. That's what we want. He will use that, that shame to get our attention and discipline us. Now God, God's discipline for his people is not something just in the Old Testament. God will, will use discipline Hebrews 12 tells us in that discipline, we're learning holiness. We're learning God. We're being connected. We're sharing with his holiness. So there's a unique mechanism within the, the God that we love and serve and loves us and gave himself for us. There's a particular mechanism where he says, if you're doing something wrong, I'm going to let you know. 
If you're not listening to me, I'm going to let you know. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. And and that in James chapter 4 follows. You fight and quarrel because you're asking things with the wrong motives. and You're friends with the world. He yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in his people. So God says, I'm coming in. And I'm letting you know what's happening. Galatians 6 uh, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Hebrews 12, I just included verses 5 and 7. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Have you ever connected those two things? When you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when you know you are not where you should be, and it's not just a phrase, well, you know, I'm not where I should be but it really is a conviction that says, God, I'm tired of being where I shouldn't be. That God's saying, you're mine. You're mine. There's a special love I have for you. And you're mine. Jerry Bridges says, God will not discipline us ultimately. He's disciplined his son ultimately. But he will discipline us temporarily. We have to have a category in our minds for that to where we can understand the God that's after us because he's zealous for his holy name. He's going after that. And he will remind us, but here is the coolest thing about God. When God is looking to remind us about who we are, he reminds us of his promise toward us, not of all of our failures. See, that's unnatural. Because we know as parents, we want to point out to our children all the times that they've not done what we've asked them to do. As if that's going to be motivation to say, oh, okay, now I'll obey. God doesn't treat us that way. God comes to us and says, you're wrong. Here's my promise. Are you aware of the promise? And he points the promise of the covenant of Levi. That covenant is a promise. God promised Levi, the tribe of Levi. So when he speaks to Levi, he's talking about all the descendants from the high priest and everybody else that took care of the temple. Here's just a few uh, scriptures to illustrate what this covenant was with Levi. Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 through 5. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people. From those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord. Him and his sons for all time. 
to help us understand a weight of what's going on there. This is, these are the priests. These are the only people that got to go into the tabernacle. The only people that got to go into the temple. That's pretty special. But you know what's specialer? They weren't annihilated every time they went in. They didn't have to keep on having sons because they kept on getting killed off as soon as they went into the temple to do their service. But no, he says they are able to stand and to minister. You know what this points to? Our high priest, Jesus, who stands in the presence of God. He took on our punishment so we wouldn't be annihilated, that we get to experience the presence of God like that. But these priests were special. They were commissioned to carry the ark from place to place when the tabernacle was being torn down and they were moving places. They were commissioned to clean all the utensils of the temple, keep them clean, keep the fire ever burning, keep the bread ever fresh, keep the incense ever burning. That was their role. And I bet they were the envy of a lot of tribes. But yet they get comfortable, they get casual, and they start looking around saying, hey, what's in it for us? without trusting who God is for them, because that, that's their inheritance. Joshua 13, verses 14 and 33. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. But the, to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. This covenant, God's reminding them. And, and with any covenant that God does, you know what man's role is? Trust him. Trust him, then obedience will follow if you're trusting him. He goes to Abraham. Abraham believes God, it's credited to him as righteousness. He makes all these covenants with people and he's saying, trust me. Makes a covenant with David. You'll always have a king to be on the throne. David's role is not to make sure it happens, but to trust God. These priests in this covenant, their role was to trust him. But yet their hearts found faithless. They don't want to trust him that way. But there, there's, there's a beautiful thing that happens when we recognize how God, when he's telling us we're wrong, we, we hear that in the midst of, here's my promise to you. And I think a wonderful illustration of that is in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 28 where Jacob is fleeing from Lying to his father, stealing from his brother. So he's a liar and a thief, and he's on the run. And he decides to take a nap. Go to sleep because he's tired of running. So he takes a stone and puts his head on it, falls asleep, and he's given a vision where he sees stairways, angels descending and ascending. Jacob wakes up from that, and he says this. Surely God was in this place and I did not know it. Now in that dream, we never have God saying, look, you idiot, you're lying, you're a thief. When are you going to get your act together? Now I say it, I say it tongue in cheek, but seriously, because a lot of times that's our encouragement toward one another. We need to be very, very, very careful in our speech. We can do that in, in tone in, con- in condescending speech. We have to be careful. 
Because how does God remind us to love him? How does God motivate us to be toward him? He says, this is who I am. Because he comes to Jacob and he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to promise you the same thing I promised to your granddad and your dad. You're going to be mine. And all your people are going to be mine. And I'm going to bless them. And Jacob is reduced to nothing. He understands himself. I've just been in the presence of God and I'm still alive. And he then says, surely this place is awesome. So he takes the same stone and he makes an altar out of it. And he calls that place Bethel, the house of God, the presence of God. Do we have an awareness of the presence of God that draws us back toward him? Because that, that's what God's going after. And, and there's Psalm 119, 38 says, Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared, that you may be honored, that you may be, that we might be in awe of you. And I think his promise is also all that he's accomplished in our lives. This week, um, I was scrolling through the channels, getting ready to go to bed, and came across, I came upon TBN, Trinity Broadcast Network, which I never watch. But here I come to this program, and it's uh, the glory days of TBN, 1987. And everybody's got big hair and mullets. And it's obnoxious. And, but, and so you've got, the, you've got the showy thing going on and stuff, and I'm kind of listening to... Um, Listen to the preaching, kind of going, okay, well, okay, you can spend that a little bit, all right. But it was a nostalgic moment for me because I was in this church in 1987. And I can remember people with big hair and mullets and guys walking around with perms. I was a little iffy. But then I, as I'm sitting there, I think it was the next morning, I realized, I ended up watching it for two hours. And I, I mean, they have all these singing specials. I, I turned it off before the preacher got up there. I said, okay, this is a marathon, and I'm just going to bed. <laughs> but as, I, as I'm there, it was the next morning praying. I, I remember that date, 1987. It was January of 1987. And I remember I was in Lakeview Christian Center, almost 11 years old. And in September of 1987, God saved me. saved me. And, and they, they were singing the songs that we sang in church then. And there was enough of it that felt the same way that I was taken back as a boy. It was God this morning simply saying, I've loved you. I've loved you. I've loved you. And for me, that's It causes me to not want to look up. It causes me to not want to try anything for God. Because I know I'll mess it up. But it causes me to fear Him. Because of all of His greatness, of all of His goodness. And I'm thinking this morning of all the episodes in my life where God could have come to me very easily and said, shame on you. He never did. He simply loved me. I had the sense of the Lord saying, 
That's my glory. That's my holiness. And this concept of fear, he's reminding the Levites, he's reminding the priests. This concept of fear is not, it's not a slavish fear where we cower. It's a sonship fear. Sinclair Ferguson helps with those distinctions in his book, Grow in Grace. But, but there's, there's just the awareness that God, I, I want to be close to you. But yes, I'm, I'm a little nervous when it comes to you because I immediately recognize in your pure love toward me, I've not been responsible. I've been sinful. I've been wayward so many times. But yet God comes with his promise. He reminds us. And it draws us to him. And it's reminding, he's, he's appealing to the priest. Remember the covenant. Remember the promise. You're special. You're mine. Appealing to that to motivate them into rightness, into uprightness. And he's in, in his covenant of fear, uh, uh, sonship, uh, we, we need to make sure. Because I think within the fear of God, there is a mixture. And Jerry Bridges in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, helps with these distinctions very well. There's a mixture of dread, veneration, and wonder. When we think about God, they're all mixed. Even with Jesus, his disciples, they know him, they've seen him. They've watched him go off and use the bathroom. They know this man. But yet, when he stills the storm, what do they all do? They freak out. He's walking on the water, and what do they do? It's a ghost. And time after time, Jesus has to tell them, don't be afraid. Why? Because they were really afraid. But Peter, his fear is shown when, before Jesus even, as he's calling as disciple, Peter's, Jesus asked Peter to go out on his boat, so they go out a little ways, teach the crowds that are on the beach. After Jesus finished teaching, hey, Peter, why don't you go put the nets in again? All right, Lord, I'll do it on your bidding, but we've been fishing all night, and nothing has come from the fishing. Self-preservation. It's there for us all. Beware. Puts his nets in has so much a big catch of fish, the nets are breaking, he's got to call James and John with the second boat to come in and help him haul this thing in. What does he do to Jesus? He gets down at his knees. He says, get away from me. He recognized Jesus' holiness, his distinct otherness, and he didn't want to be around it. So there's a, there's a mixture of dread and veneration, worship, and wonder where we sit there and go, God. I think when the priests were asking the questions, how, how? They literally thought, I believe they literally thought they were still doing God's work. Because they had no idea that the, the, the spiritual erosion that was taking place, wave after wave of person that was coming with an offering, and day after day, night after night, here, there's an eroding taking place. So when they're asking how, I don't know if it's a mocking, well, how? I think it's a, how, we're doing all the right things. But he reminds him of the covenant. He reminds him of his awesomeness. In awe of his name, uh, something that spiritual erosion diminishes because it disconnects our hearts from who God is. But we see, this, we see this mixture of dread and veneration and wonder in Isaiah 6. Keith took us there last week, but I'm just going to uh, just talk about it quickly like this. 
the, the seraphs, the seraphim, literally burning ones. That's who's flying around the throne. They're pronouncing holy, holy, holy. And, and there's something unique that's happening with their wings. Each creature has six wings. With two, they're flying. With two, they're covering their face. And with two, they're covering their feet. What do we learn from that? I think we see Isaiah respond the same way. When you see God's holiness, you're immediately reduced to, I'm nothing. But even these, these creatures flying around the throne, they don't have the dirty, sinful rags that we do. Yet, they hesitate to even look at God. They hesitate even to touch with their feet the holiness that they're beholding hesitate because of the wonder and the dread and the worship that's happening is holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Nowhere else in scripture do we have three attributes of God in sequence like this. Revelation we have it as well. But only with holiness do we have this repetition. We don't even have creatures crying out love, love, love. Truth, truth, truth. Yet he is all of those things in infinite measure. But we have holy, holy, holy. Jerry Bridges says God's holiness is the summation of all of his greatness and goodness. When you put all of his character together, you have holy. And I think there's three distinct aspects of holiness. Now, when you... even studying for this, when you talk about the fear of God, when you talk about the holiness of God, it's very difficult to capture what it is because it simply comes from God and we're trying to use finite words. That's why when you read books about God's holiness, it's just adjective after adjective after adjective after after, and then you still don't have any words left but you still haven't felt like you described God's holiness. God is a holy God in that he is transcendent. And he is majestic in his transcendence. Transcendence meaning he is up above everything. He is over it all. It is there. It's his. He rules. He reigns. And he is completely other than us. See, I think we, we tend to make God manageable. We tend to make him, toward our thoughts, we tend to bring him down, which ultimately just raises us up. But we bring God down to where we can figure him out. And there's just a reality that we can't figure God out. But we can be affected by the reality of who he is and see it show up everywhere in our lives and touch every relationship and touch every word that comes out of our mouths, touches everything that we're looking at, everything we're listening to. God is completely other than us. God in his holiness describes as a purity that's, Inherent in God's holiness. It's a moral purity. It's a rightness. It's a righteousness. But we have 1 John 1.5 describes it as in him there is no darkness at all. And Habakkuk 1.13 lets us know that in, in the, there is no darkness in him at all to the point that he cannot look upon evil and wrongdoing. Because he's of such pure eyes. 
think we lose some of these things and just as we're becoming comfortable with the Christian life and even casual and leads to a, a, an adjusting, a compromising in our mind, adjusting of the standards of who God is. We begin to reorient God. We begin to redefine God. That's dangerous. God's holiness is also fire. Paul says that, that God dwells in unapproachable light. So bright that it would incinerate us all if it appeared. It, it manifested in physical form right now. Because that's where he dwells. He is that fire. And there is a trembling that should come with that. There is a, a trembling of God. Your fire is indeed a consuming fire. What does it need to consume? What dross? What, what attitude? What habit? A, fi a, hot, a fire so hot white that no one can look at it and live. At the, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark records that Jesus' face became bright like the sun. And the sun is a ball of fire. His face could have literally been fire. And then there's a, a voice that echoes and booms. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In that moment, Peter, James, and John fell down as they said, this indeed is an awesome place. That awe, that I think we... Do we know that awe? Have we lost a sense of that awe? Have, are, are, we, are we familiar enough with the promises of God that they don't have weight anymore? I should say casual. We should be familiar with them. But if we're casual with the promises of God, we, we're just, we become flippant, become harsh in our judgments toward others, become self-righteous. But there's an effect that we see here. The priest should have been, in, they should be having an effect on those that they're ministering to. They should have an effect by their, their true instruction that they should be speaking God's words whenever there is spiritual erosion in us inevitably our words start to sound like God's words and our words start we start quoting ourselves to other people and we have to listen and use discernment am, am I am I giving the Bible away in my speech to other people when they're when they're hurting when they're having a rough time who am I am I blaming the right thing I think for, for many of us, it can become that we quote uh, news stories more than the Bible to one another. And I think we're missing a true instruction because there should be, all of us as a priesthood of believers, should be instructing, should be passing on encouragement, blessing, exhortation, admonishment to where there's a growth and there's this. There's keeping people from sin. Mature believers have a responsibility to keep people from sin. That is, that's a, an outright, okay, stop doing that. Really, that's not honoring God. You've got to stop doing that. But that's also a manner of living that draws people into where we are. It draws them into the example that we are. And they say, I want to be like you because you look like God. You look like who he's declared himself to be. The priest should have been walking in uprightness. That was the covenant. 
God gave them life and peace. He gave them life in blessing, in sustenance, in provision. He gave them peace, in peace with him, that they weren't killed every time they saw his presence or were around his presence, but also that he was their mighty fortress. That's where their peace came from. The priests were, they, they were the ones to decide between disputes and everything. But yet they're showing partiality. They're doing things their own way. They like it this way because I, you bring me good Good blessing, so I'm going to bless you. They're showing favoritism. But we, we ought to, when we are affected by the fear of God, the holiness of God, when there's an awe that's growing and we're living under that awe and, and, and we're, we're having, we're having a, a moment, we're having an understanding of who God is that simply makes us speechless in His greatness. We ought, we ought to pursue personal holiness. Because the priest should have done that. That's how we keep others from sin. They look at our lives and they want to be like us. Think in your life, someone that you have said, I want to be like that person. Maybe early in your Christian life or, or presently now that you would look at somebody else and say, you know what? Every time she speaks, every time he speaks, every time he prays, every time she prays, something in my heart just wells up and I want to be like that. What are you recognizing? You're not recognizing that that, that person is like you. You're seeing holiness. You're seeing other than-ness. And it draws you in. And you want it. A.W. Tozer is gift to the body of Christ. His ministry was basically in the 50s and 60s. And, and if you want any type of arousal, spiritual shaken, pick up a Tozer book. Knowledge of the Holy, Attributes of God, Pursuit of God. Can't go wrong. And you will be stirred. Here's a little taste from Attributes of God on the subject of God's holiness and our responsibility to be holy. We've used the technical interpretation of justification by faith and the imputed righteousness of Christ until we've watered down the wine of our spirituality. Do you get that? You know that understanding justification a little too well produces an apathy because we just think, well, God is going to forgive everything. Nobody can kick me out of God's presence. And we excuse ourselves from the moral responsibility that we have to be like him. Because without holiness, we can't see him. God, help us in this evil hour. He says, we come into the presence of God with tainted souls. We come with our own concept of morality, having learned it from books, from the newspaper, and from school. We come to God dirty. Our whitest white is dirty. Our churches are dirty. And our thoughts are dirty. And do nothing about it. If we came to God dirty, but trembling and shocked and awestruck in his presence if we knelt at his feet and cried with Isaiah, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. Then I could understand. But we skip into his awful presence. We're dirty, but we have a book called Seven Steps to Salvation that gives us seven verses to get us out of our problems. And each year we have more Christians, more people going to church, more church buildings, more money, and less spirituality and less holiness. We're forgetting. Holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. I tell you this, I want God to be what God is. The impeccably holy, 
unapproachable holy thing, the all holy one. I want him to be and remain the holy. I want his heaven to be holy and his throne to be holy. I don't want him to change or modify his requirements. That we too would have that type of heart to be able to say, God, I don't want to, I don't want to change who you are and make it fit and make it manageable in my own mind. I want you to be who you are and I want to see that in its accuracy as much as possible so we can be affected by who he is. To tell you quickly of a man named Phineas, if you've ever come across him in Numbers 25, if you want to turn there. Verse 1, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the day that the fierce anger of the Lord may, may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those whose men have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. That's bold. That's pretty brass. Every, there, there is justice happening in the camp. There is purification happening in the camp. And this man takes a woman and brings him in front of everybody into his tent. While they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, there's, there's repentance seeking to occur. And this man, in his hardness of heart, is going to do what he wants. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Phineas was a man that closed the door. Phineas was a man that said, no, this is not right. We've got to stop this. And this is a bold action. But this bold action did not come without knowledge. It did not come just because, <coughs> sorry. It did not come because he was simply uh, mustering up the ability to love God. It didn't come because he was saying, oh, I've got to do something right for God. And I've got to be bold about it and boisterous about it. So I'm going to go kill these two people. 
in their impurity. That's without knowledge. You're just rambunctious. You're just telling people they're wrong for the sake of telling people they're wrong. That's without knowledge. You know what Phineas had? Phineas had the episode in Exodus chapter 19 where Moses is told by God to bring everybody near to the mountain called Sinai. Bring everybody near, but they have to purify themselves for three days because when my glory comes down, if they're not pure, they're gonna die. And tell them they can only come to the edge of the mountain. And if anybody, you better station guards because if anybody tries to come up, stop them because they will die. And here, the glory, after those three days, the glory descends on the mount and there's lightning and thunder and everybody is freaked out. Everybody is bowed low. Everybody, they say, Moses, please do whatever you have to do. Go there because that's a terrifying God. Later on in Deuteronomy, Moses says, remember when God did that? He did it so all, all of you would fear him. And that fear would keep you from sinning against him. Phineas was there. Don't know how old he was. He was young. And it left such an impression upon him that he knew some, nobody else did anything. He knew somebody has to act because God's name is at stake. His glory is needing to be known. We hear that in David before Goliath. David's saying, who is this that mocks the armies of the living God? Everybody else is going, oh, you're going to go? You're going to fight today? Are you going to go fight? But every morning, Israel came out, oh, shouting the war cry, and nobody would do anything. May we not be casual to the point of compromise that when God says go or do, that we look for somebody else to do it. That we would be willing to say, I'll be holy. I'll be zealous for God's name. I won't, I won't, it won't be rambunctious. It won't be without knowledge. It's gonna be all the knowledge of God as I sink myself into him and I, I glory in his glory and I'm caught up with him in his, in his exaltation. And when I do that, I will be with him. He will be my inheritance. So I don't have to get tied to the things of this world that are around me. We, church, need to, we need to seek to maintain a spiritual edge in our culture. Where too often moderation is attacking that. We, so, so uh, and this is really, I don't know how to explain this other than this. I think a lot of us spend so much time trying to figure out how to be on the edge of culture. To be relevant so people will know that Christians can be normal. Can I please tell you, and all love, I love you all dearly, but that is the most idiotic reasoning in the world. The world is not looking for people that are like them. But yet we spend so much time trying to figure out how can I be as close, still love God, but as close to this to be relevant for other people so they can see, oh, come to church. No, if the only thing between us and the world is the place we go on Sunday mornings, we're not doing what God wants. The world, the culture, they want holy. We're drawn to people when they're holy. We're drawn to people because they love God. We're drawn to people because they're not like us. We want to be like Christ. We see Christ in them and we're drawn to that. That's who we need to be for the world. The world is lost and dying and without hope. And if all that's different is the, we can't, the hope is not in a building. And if all we're, all we're demonstrating is that the hope is in a building, a place that you go on Sunday mornings, We also, I think, need to regain a holy hesitation that causes us to not be so easily toward things. 
Now, this is, this is going to be sensitive, but it would mean that some of you, many of you, us, including myself, we need to reconsider what we're looking at, what we're listening to. And it could be morally neutral. It could be news. You just listen to too much of it. So you're more enamored with a political process than you are with God. But it could be impure. There, please, there needs to be a hesitation about seeing movies. That doesn't mean don't go see movies. That means there needs to be a hesitation where we say, God, what do you think about this? What do you want from me? Not, well, so-and-so and so-and-so. I've just compared myself to my surroundings and now I have permission. And I have been, Kathy and I both, we, we've been mystified sometimes that somebody, people have said, oh, that's a great movie. You need to see that movie. It's a great movie. And we're sitting there embarrassed going, oh, my goodness, I can't believe we're, we've ejected it out of the VCR or the DVD player. And we used to think, why, why would this happen uh, right after we were married, somebody told us about a movie and told us we would love it. it would, and it was, it was atrocious. And the movie was awful. It was The Apostle with uh, Robert Duvall. Awful. Don't, go, don't see that. And we began considering, why in the world would that person tell us that that would be a good movie for us? And we began to examine ourselves. Are we not shining enough to, so people can see? You know what? They probably wouldn't like that. But we can be so flippant in movies, and it's just the thing we do. But it gets casual. Some of you really need to consider alcohol and staying away from it in order to keep others from sin. Let's not, let's not make sure that we're look, look, uh, technically justified. Yes, you are. But don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk to those that you're around. Don't be an idiot to those you're around. Serve, love. But that needs to be on all of us to go before the Lord and say, God, what is holiness for me? What is holiness for me? Because I, thinking back to the church back in 1987, I, about Lakeview Christian Center in 1987, I'm remembering people this morning who played a, a wonderful role in me growing in grace and being here today. But I'm also remembering people who aren't serving Christ today. And it just happens, that erosion happens gradually because we lose sight of the awesomeness of God and who he is and our desire to be holy. So we need a spiritual edge, but it's an edge that's really close to the mountain of God. That's where the edge is. To where we can, we can be hope to a lost and dying world. We can have a, a holy hesitation that serves people around us, serves our own children. And it says, I'm, I'm going to hesitate. I'm not going to touch that. Relationships with people, that might be the hesitation. I should not be interacting with that person on a friendship level or an intimacy level or whatever it is because it's, it's light mixing with darkness. And Paul says, that doesn't mix. So can we simply say, God, everything's on the table. Everything's on the table. I'm not going to hold anything back from you because I want you. The band would come back up. Second Corinthians seven, verse one. Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, 
Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Father, we need you right now. We need you in powerful ways. We need you. We need you to remind us of your covenant with us. That we, that we have the reality, Lord, that never will we hear, never will we hear you tell us shame on you because you looked at your son and you said shame is on you so my children will be free to know me, know my love and love me back. Lord, we ask that we would have a, a confidence in your promises toward us, a confidence that you will never turn away from doing good to us, a confidence that brings us in in our moment of need, saying, God, everything's on the table. Everything. I just want to see you. Because, God, when we know we love you and we're knowing your love, it's easy to preserve ourselves. It's easy to to want to be holy for you. Lord, remind us of your covenant. Remind us of your covenant of peace with us. Remind us of your covenant of love with us. And Lord, give us faith today to respond. So we're also asking that you would disturb our comfort. Free us from casual, flippant walks with you. Lord, order our thoughts to be your thoughts. May we revel, may we glory in the fact that you are our holy God, holy Savior. Around you, such beauty. Your majesty could fill an endless sky. Holy are you, Lord. Transcendent, exalted, the heavens cannot contain your presence holy are you Lord and as I behold your glory I'm undone.